Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am honored to be welcoming Dr. Andrea Flegel, a distinguished expert in healthcare economics. As the founder and CEO of the Health Finance Institute and with a background in research at Harvard Chan School of Public Health, her expertise spans health system financing, governance, universal healthcare, and cost-effective interventions for chronic diseases, particularly in developing nations. In our discussion, Dr. Flegel emphasizes the game-changing potential of healthcare investment, especially in chronic disease management. In this episode, we will discuss health finance, strategies for promoting healthy behaviors on a large scale, and the integration of the private and public sectors to address significant health challenges. Join me for this enlightening discussion with Dr. Andrea Flegel, a health economist, scientific advisor, and the visionary CEO of the Health Finance Institute. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me on For Your Listening Pleasure. And you and I connected a few months ago, and I was really excited about this episode just because when you were in university, you originally thought you were going to be a ballerina. That's what you went to school for. And you totally changed your major and went into a different direction in life. But can you talk about what it was like for you first, where you grew up and what that was like, and then how you got to university? Absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for having me and asking these great questions about about my past. So when I was... Um, so when I was in high school, so around 16, 17, we were supposed to do this like paper mache um, puppet version of ourselves, the way we saw ourselves. And I had made this person who was sitting on a chair and, you know, and then had kind of like two bodies, upper bodies emanating. So one was a thinker person who was reading a book and another one was like a dancer. So there's always there's always been this creative artistic side in me um, and also the, um, um, you know, more of a intellectual academic side, if you will. And so when I was, I think, well, I love ballet from a very young age. And I think at age 12, finally, my parents were in a position to say, yeah, we can send you to ballet school. Your little sisters are dancing. Don't you want to do it as well now? And I said, yes, of course. And I just fell in love with it. And I, you know, went from like working in a library to going to dance on a daily basis, Monday through Friday after school, taking the train home, coming home at 10, doing my homework, waking up early to get started on my schoolwork, rinse and repeat. And the issue, however, was that I had this love for classical ballet, but my body wasn't necessarily the typical body for it. So for those who don't know, when when you want to be a classical ballerina, you should generally not be too tall um you should also have turnout which means basically you're turning out your feet at a 180 degree angle 
um, and your feet have to be very pointed and your knees should be touching. So all of these things were not true for my body. So while I was really gifted in the academic world in ballet, you know, I wouldn't get cast into the main roles in my, in my school. And I was told I should do more modern dancing. So at age 18 or 19, when I was applying for colleges, I was like, I need to give dance a try, right? Like, what do I want to do with it professionally? And, um, and I decided, or I felt that by studying at more of a liberal arts college in North America versus in the Europe, where you have to kind of decide on your major right away, if I double majored in biochemistry and dance, or dance, as you would say in the UK, um, you, I could maybe give both, um, you know, both career tracks a try. And um, so, yeah, so I was accepted to this, to a university in Canada called Simon Fraser University on a full scholarship. And they basically offered me to double major in, in biochemistry and dance. And it was a very modern dance program, which, you know, uh, you know, I would have had more of a, um, a chance to, to succeed in. And, but it, the, the modern dancing, it just wasn't for me. I'm, I'm, I'm from Austria. I love classical music. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I think my pearls give me away. I like to dress in a classic manner, you know, the, the whole like, you know, puking on stage kind of contemporary just wasn't for me, you know? So I ended up majoring in biochemistry and then finding a school off site from my university campus where I completed like a classical teacher, uh, classical ballet teacher's training. So it was clear at that point that you know a classical ballerina um, career wasn't in it for me it wasn't like achievable just because and i had put my feet i remember when i was 12 or 13 i had my sister sit on my legs for my turnout for hours i had put my feet under my 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 closet and and try to like bend them so they would shape up better into like those ballet feet but you know you can't really change your like, you can't change your dna at least not yet in a way that it makes you a classical ballerina shaped person. So, um, and it was kind of like after my biochemistry degree, I had stayed on for an extra year to do a master's. And I was thinking, you know, like, I'm not really into that particular type of research, but I stayed on to finish my dance teacher's program. And serendipitously, I had found out about this master's in public health program that I was able to switch into. There's a whole story about that as well. But I was going to say, can we switch into that story, like as a side yes. note, because you oh, yeah. told me about it and I loved yeah. hearing it. There were, so yeah, so there were two periods, two times in my life where, you know, there was like almost like a deus ex machina where there's like a, like God's hand, like played a role in how, how my life would be. So basically the story is like this. So I just completed my undergraduate in biochemistry. Um, so it was a four-year program in Canada and I had wanted to go to medical school. I only got into programs in Europe, not in the U.S. Um, I had one more year to go with my dance teacher's program and i came back early from my summer vacation to get a head start in in a master's program that i started on alzheimer's research and i was just in the lab and i was just not having it like it was just i was not interested i wasn't motivated and i was doing a lot of soul searching a lot of praying like well what should i do i knew i wanted to stay for my ballet teacher's training program one more year 
but I also kind of felt that that wasn't quote unquote everything that I wanted to do given my background and my my passions. So um, I remember that one time where I was, I was going out with a friend of mine and he said, oh, you know, there's this great master's in public health program at your university and you should check it out. And I applied and I couldn't get in. And I was like, what, what do you mean? I have never heard of this program. He said, oh, you know, you should look at the reading list. And I looked at the reading list and there was, you know, the first global health course I saw had a had a book by um, Paul Farmer, who started Partners in Health. Um, entitled Pathologies of Power on it. And I was just like, oh my God, like I started reading it and I, I was so interested in it. And I just felt drawn to this program that focused on health, but at the global, at the policy level, not at the laboratory level. And, um, you know, and I, I did some soul searching and some praying over the weekend and I thought I need to try and get into this program. So week one of classes, day one, I walk into the Dean's office and I said to him like, um, you know, I need to switch majors. I need to switch into your department. And he said, well, there were only about 10,000 plus applicants for the 20 spaces. But if you think you really need to um, get into this program, write an essay and send it over tomorrow morning. And I said, OK, so I sat down and I wrote an essay about universal health care um, and why, um, you know, under the human rights for health and uh, the rights, human rights convention and the right to health. I want to do my part in a policy world to help um, people um, and nations go towards universal healthcare and universal healthcare financing. And I submitted the essay and they somehow were convinced and they opened a space for me, even though the classes were starting that week. And, and I think during that time, like soon after when I was really finding amazing mentors who had worked at international organizations, who had worked globally, who had worked in Haiti, really making a difference, I felt that I could sort of hang up my professional dance shoes. You know, I felt that my calling was really in applying my like love for science, but love for science with an impact. And I felt that that in public health and public health science, this is an area where I could make that impact. And then I think I was kind of at peace with having, so I'm actually like behind my desk and looking at my, you know, Chiquetti diploma. So Chiquetti is a type of ballet, you know, and I had to go through rigorous exams and study dance every day. And, but it's an achievement that, you know, nobody right now can take this away from me, right? I've done it. And despite not having a perfect body, I still was able to, you know, dance for myself and I still take classes and I still go to tango and to salsa and whatnot. But that moment when I found sort of my calling, my professional calling, everything else kind of like just fell away. You know, it all started making sense and I felt very calm. Like it was, it was very hard to go through a master's program as an international student and going through an unpaid internship in the US and then dealing with US visa issues and PhD applications. So, but it just felt it was the right thing to do. So kind of being centered in sort of like what I felt was my calling kind of allowed me to then focus more on the academic part of myself as opposed to the artistic part of myself. So let's talk about that academic calling. So you just mentioned you finished your master's and then you started consulting for the World Health Organization, the World Bank Group. Um, You took some time and you actually started, you went back to Harvard and got your PhD can you talk to us about those experiences? Because you also ended up working for the UN 
And I want to dive into the work you're doing now and the company you found, but what did you start to see when you started working at these prestigious, not only organizations, but I mean, it's Harvard. Um, Did you ever get discouraged? Because you're talking about universal healthcare. We both live in the United States currently. It's still such a hot topic, whether or not you give someone healthcare. The original research you started doing in Alzheimer's, I'm sure that can get draining if you continue trying to solve a disease that deteriorates individuals. But with the work you're doing, it's such a global crisis nonstop. How did you keep going and when did you decide to pursue that PhD? Yeah, no, these are super good questions. I mean, I think that the, I think there's perhaps three main reasons around the PhD. And one was, I remember I was sitting at the assembly at the Pan American Health Organization. So the way the World Health Organization is organized, they have a headquarters, which is in Geneva. And then they have five regional offices and their office for the Americas, so for North and South America, is is based in Washington, D.C. And this is where I did my internship in 2007. And I noticed that those who had a doctorate, and they often don't care if it's a a PhD or a medical uh, doctorate, are literally sitting in the front row. And even my supervisor was fantastic, fantastically skilled, amazing person, but he had a master's and he was sitting in a second row. And they were making all these great decisions that they were discussing around access to HPV vaccines, so the vaccine that can prevent cervical cancer in women because it was just newly licensed and all these great policy debates, right? And I'm like, I want to be part of that. And I saw that having a doctorate was really what was required. So it's not required in every field, but in global health, having a doctorate gives you a certain amount of legitimacy. So I always was kind of drawn to that kind of like decision-making seat. Um, back in the day, my university, we didn't, like international students didn't have healthcare actually, and they didn't have dental insurance. And the president of the student association back then, who then actually became an advisor to the Ghanaian president, so that's another story, but he actually um, set up healthcare and insurance for international students at my university and it made such a difference so i was like i want to be that person who helps that process and i think i need to get a phd or an md in order to get there um i also saw that economics so basically studying not just the health impact but how much it costs and how much health impact you derive from your spending is a key driver in a decision making um in in health systems uh formation and I didn't really have a good training in that, which is, again, the diff- owing to the difference of the Canadian and the US system. And I said, oh, no, I need to have training in that. And I need to, I really want to take the best courses. And that also led me to do a PhD. And then thirdly, you mentioned Harvard. And so there is this, so first of all, like I was really lucky and obviously also privileged. And, um, you know, I think that, <clears throat> the training and the exposure to the professors were some, you know, some of the world leading scientists in my field were there, which was one of the reasons. But the other issue is, is that a lot of people look at, you know, on your resume, where did you go to school and then they make a decision whether they could they hire you or not. And when I um, graduated from high school, um, when I graduated from high school, I didn't, I felt like, oh, I didn't need a super name university on my resume and but i felt it was like holding me back so when i was like okay so i really want to make a difference how far can i put what i have to offer 
um, in the service of public health, and I felt uh, my path would probably be more impactful if I had a degree from a university that's so recognizable. So that was also one of the factors that that kind of fed into it. And then I expanded my network and this and that. Now, in terms of like the discouragement, right? I mean, these are universal healthcare, climate change, the pandemic. I mean, these are things that not one single person can solve on their own. And I think that especially during the pandemic, you know, when it's really about everyone, it, when it comes from vaccine research and the breakthrough to everyone actually wearing a mask and doing their part or staying home and they needed to stay home, it's the same thing in universal healthcare, right? It works best when there's risk pooling. It works best when everybody buys in. It works best when people do their own work in terms of preventing and going to their checkups and so on and so forth. So it's kind of like, I had to come to terms with the fact that it's an area where, you know, there's not a single hero that's going to emerge. It's not a thing where, you know, you have like in technology, you have like Elon Musk owning half the Starlink, you know, um, satellites orbiting the earth, you know, it's, it's universal healthcare is about solidarity and there shouldn't be like a superwoman or a superman or a superhero that institutes universal health care so so in a sense that i had to basically say that i want to put myself and my work in the service of universal health care i want to be a voice i want to be a reputable and recognized voice that's listened to among those who might be skeptical but at the end of the day it takes policymakers it takes voters it takes um you know, really societies to come together and make the decision. So, so in a sense, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but I just get, of course, I get discouraged. And if you look at the trends, it's, you know, we're not getting better in health financing. And so I don't know. I mean, I hope, I don't know. I mean, you can always, I guess you can always look at the negative and, you know, when you look at the facts, we're not going to achieve, like I think only 40% of low, least income, low income countries are going to achieve universal health coverage with the most essential service package by like 2040, you know, mm-hmm. but like, no, I, you definitely answered the question. Yeah, okay, and I think that <laughs> that leads us into um, a different topic, if that's okay. So as I was preparing to talk with you, I really started to learn about the concept of finance, health, and how they really play such a big role in each other. And that does play into universal healthcare because you constantly hear people talking about we can't afford it or financially it's not going to happen. But can you talk about the blended finance model and why it's so important for both private business sectors to partner with public business entities. Because when I started researching, and I'm going to put all the links to the papers you've written, as well as to your website, um, the Health Finance Institute in this episode show notes. So if people want to learn more, I found it fascinating because I had never really thought about health in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that traditionally you think about I mean, maybe not so much in the US, but certainly most other countries do think about health as something, you know, the government provides or sets up a framework or legal framework by which people can access healthcare. In the US, it's much more linked to your employer um, as well as to um, Medicare and Medicaid. But basically what 
what health financing is, it's like it's one of the key sort of like determinants of um, of how people can access and afford care in the system that they live in, right? So there's a different couple of models. Um, so there is uh, a model where uh, it's linked to your employer, like the, where you have some, something like sickness funds, like in Germany, where you pay your employer and yourself, you pay a portion into a, an insurance fund. And that insurance fund is needs to offer certain coverage for your care and then based on the negotiations between the funds and the and the and the service providers and the government you then have a certain like range of services available at certain prices and then you have government funded models like you know you have in the uk where about 20 percent of your paycheck goes to the national healthcare system the nhs and um and then basically the government decides what is covered and the government also pays the providers and contracts providers in that system and they sometimes have so that's basically and how this is like how much health uh is paid for is basically decided on based on different formulae um and so when it comes to low and middle income countries we look at health financing for chronic diseases and our starting point was basically so the early death and suffering, so 60% of early death and suffering, so the disease burden in these countries actually come from cancer, heart disease, um, diabetes, uh, lung disease and mental health, but only like 3% of development assistance for health, so international funding goes to these conditions. And most low-income countries don't have very good tracking of their spending. They don't have dedicated spending to these systems. So what's happening is that you have scenarios where 50% of um, childhood cancers in low middle income countries aren't even like diagnosed, right? Or you have um, scenarios like in Malaysia where I think 60% of diabetes is diagnosed in an ER when people don't see anymore, when they lose their limbs because the primary healthcare system isn't financed well and isn't set up in a way to actually focus on prevention access and adherence. So at the same time, when we do all these studies, the economic analyses, like we say, like, you know, if we invested in what we know works, we would save 5%, we would be able to add 5% of the GDP of India to India and 4% of China's GDP to China and 9% of the government tax burden would be alleviated in, in the US if we only did what we knew we could do or knew worked, right? So we're basically saying we have to basically determine not just study these outcomes, but find a way to 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 drive the financing in a way that those who put money in can get some of that money back that, you know, that benefits the economy. And this is where, so I'm getting very long-windedly to blended finance. So blended finance is basically, you use some money that's on the table by the public sector, you use some money that's on the table by donors, and you try and bring um you bring others like other um uh private sector capital to the table as well so the gates foundation for example can say okay i really want this fund to set up be set up i think there's going to be returns but if there's not going to be returns at the beginning we're going to take the first loss because we're going to be the donor but any any wins that are being made on the money the private sector can walk away with right so basically saying you take a bunch of like you know, so you take some, you know, technical assistance, perhaps from bilateral agencies, you take some um, money from philanthropies, and you say, okay, if the private sector matches that, 
we can actually achieve more and we allow them to, for example, walk away with some wins. And we're okay with that because the health impacts that are being generated, the proof of concept that's being generated um, is more valuable to us than us not having such such an agreement put in place. That makes sense to me because in my mind, like the private sector, because they're investing, they're going to end up helping their workers maybe not take so many sick days or like the economy is going to be better because people won't be sick or you won't be worried about paying medical bills because you put something off for a few years because you thought you couldn't afford it then. And now you realize you have stage two or three cancer and your medical bills are insane. And then you're foreclosing on your home. And it's like, to me, it makes sense to actually put money in to help the health of the people in your community or within your country, because that's going to end up helping your overall GDP. But how do you realistic? How do you realistically measure the impact of healthcare access? Yeah, no, I mean, it's so like some studies that were actually show have shown that for each dollar invested in the healthcare sector, you get $7 back or like each, each dollar invested, um, you know, you actually multiply that dollar outside the healthcare sector for four to five times. Right. And so, and and until the i think with the pandemic we have come to understand that if we have to shut down businesses because we don't you know curb the virus the spread of the virus soon enough that's going to hurt the economy right so um there's various ways of measuring the link between the health impact and um and the economy so for example like um you know you could look at the very macro level like macroeconomic outputs during certain periods and for example in july 2020 during the pandemic i think there was a, around 375 billion dollars of lost output per month globally right so literally like the world economy was putting out you know basically producing less um economic value because of the impact of the pandemic right and that's so large and it's almost like undeniable right it's because of the pandemic um when you look at smaller um you know smaller scale programs you can look at both direct costs and indirect costs um so for example we followed people with diabetes and offered them certain intervention in in armenia and then we look at um you know what's the cost of the program what's the health improvement and then um what um there's evaluation so you can basically each healthy life year can be valued with a certain dollar value or you can look at how much um now that their diabetes is managed how many um how many more um, healthy life years and therefore lower medical costs will be incurred so you can look at the cost savings and then you could look at indirect costs and you've alluded to them and they're like absenteeism. So how many days do you have to miss because you're sick, you care for a sick one, you're sick, but you're at work. So you're not really working. So you're, it's called presenteeism. You retire early because of a disability um, and, and those kinds of impacts. And those indirect costs are actually often the large ones. And so, for example, when we did some study studies when I was at the OECD, we looked at the impact of you know reducing obesity and alcohol obesity rates and alcohol uh, use rates um, um, through various policy interventions. And Japan, for example, was very interested in that because they're you know they have a very high uh, large aging demographic, and so 
them keeping their workers longer and healthier and then once they retire longer and healthier so reducing the morbidity towards the end of life is really essential for their economy to to work well and stay stable right so at, the, at these levels it becomes very very important so we look at so again so to answer your question we look at you know specific health outcomes better to measure it at a clinical level but also self-reported level then we link it to um you know healthcare user data usage data manage whether diseases are managed or not and the more they are managed the cheaper it, it, it remains and then you look at the likelihood of of you know dropping out of the labor force participating at a lower rate um early retirement and 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 those kind of like productivity impacts of better like healthier less healthy populations I find this all so fascinating just because it's really been making me kind of look at things a little differently. And I'm sure for you, when you start to see the data and connect the dots and see the story that's telling, um, it's so impactful. But as I mentioned earlier, you've worked for some amazing organizations that have really started to help educate not only the United States, but countries everywhere. Um, But at some point you decided you had had enough and that you were going to start your own business. And um, I've been fortunate enough not only to have a lot of founders on the podcast, but a lot of female founders. And they have talked about how it's been hard sometimes to get funding for their company if needed, or when you go out on your own and trying to get clients or trying to really build and make a name for yourself. What made you decide to leave the organizations that you have been working for and with for so long and start the Health Finance Institute? Yeah, no, it was really a pivotal time during my life. And I I thought, you know, even until a year before I started, I thought, you know, I just want to like, you know, keep working with these organizations, maybe be a director of one of these organizations one day, and maybe I will, will be one day, who knows? But um having worked in a chronic disease space and i mentioned a three percent um figure to you so in 2008 2009 i worked on a paper that's entitled where have all the donors gone and basically saying that 60 percent of the disease burden in low and middle income countries receive three percent of development assistance for health and then a year later year or two later when i worked when i was already in a harvard uh, school of public health doctoral program I was invited to join a study that was led by Harvard by Dr. Bloom, David Bloom, and um, the World Economic Forum, which was entitled The Global Economic Burden of Chronic Diseases. And there we found that $47 trillion is basically the cost of inaction on chronic diseases. And we presented that study um, on the sidelines of the first UN high-level meeting for chronic diseases. So that was in 2011. And I thought, well, you know, we are scientists, we present the data. These are outrageous numbers. And surely all the presidents and philanthropic like leaders want that number to be smaller um, because it's about the economy and human suffering and somebody will do something about it, like set up a global fund or, you know, make a resolution or something, right? Nothing happened. 2014 was a follow-up meeting to that UN high level meeting no additional funding at the global level for chronic diseases. And in 2018, so I'd finished my PhD back then, I was a health economist at the OECD. 
I had brokered a partnership between the OECD and the UN the Agency Task Force for, for Chronic Diseases, so 42 UN agencies and the OECD on that particular topic, trying to argue we need to do a similar study, but earlier and really have a global ask. Um, and um, there was also like a financing dialogue where I had invited like a lot of public and private sector representatives to have a discussion about blended finance and I had to use my personal email because a lot of red tape existed between public and private organizations actually being in the same room. And I was I was even so privileged to represent the director general of the OECD in UN during this UN high level meetings, and no additional financing was guaranteed not even ask for. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Why is that? Like, why is there no extra funding year? Yeah. We, like the data shows that. Is it political move? Is it just like um, corporate America making more money off the fact that they're not giving more money? I don't want to try yeah. to get into the conspiracy theories. There are, just... No, no. I mean, you're actually not too far off. I mean, so there is something called the resolutions process. So usually the resolutions for these high level meetings are discussed and negotiated in the months and then usually decided upon in the summer. So everything that's going to be done during a high level meeting needs to be basically um, decided upon by, by the summer. And there's obviously like you know, there was a whole commission that was um, supposed to be independent from World Health Organization and also was supposed to have some private sector representation. And it was all sort of like political back and forth. And then the, U the WHO had a new um, director general. So they kind of like had new leadership around NCDs. But I think historically speaking, and there are some papers by Dr. Debbie Schrader, um, she's in Edinburgh, and uh, uh, Jeremy Schiffman around like what what is it about chronic diseases and i think it's one of the things is the issue right it's diabetes it's cancer and people are like why well, you know just stop smoking eat healthy right or um the notion that well here in the us we haven't even tackled these issues properly why would we give money overseas to deal with these um and then further um they are also chronic diseases right so for example when you look at uh, the Gates Foundation and their focus on vaccines and malaria, they want to eradicate malaria and Gates, among other things, wants to hang the hat on the fact that malaria was eradicated by funding of the Gates Foundation. You cannot do this with diabetes and you cannot do this with cancer, right? So it becomes much, and, and, and the, I think the, the, the fear is, is that once you start funding chronic diseases, it will take forever, right? Like it's just, you know, it's not like HIV AIDS where you're like, okay, so we provide antiretroviral therapy and then we cure it, you know, like it's really about a chronic long-term issue. Um, so I think these are, and then there are also economic interests. So there's, for example, around salt reduction, around processed foods, around added sugars, right? So there are families like the Ferrero family and they make Nutella, and I secretly love Nutella, but be that as it may, <laughs> um, they don't have it, they don't see it as in their interest to pass resolutions to reduce, make global commitments towards reduction of consumption of ultra-processed foods and, um, you know, um, added sugars. So there is a commercial, and then think about, just think about like smoking. I think with smoking, we're further ahead than in some of the, you know, the processed foods and sugar issues, but they're in sugar sweetened beverage, for example, right? 
So there is an industry pressure against certain parts of those resolutions. But it don't, I don't think they make up for everything, right? I don't think they make up for everything around the funding. And it's kind of like also like they've done these studies psychologically. When do people give? People give when they have one person, like one to one. If it's one to five or one to a hundred, people are much less likely to donate, right? And if you say, okay, I can donate vaccines for five people, you're like, okay, vaccine, vaccine costs $5, five times five is 25, right? But if you donated insulin, right, you would have to donate insulin for a very long time for one person. And I think the best analogy in recent times is sort of like you had all these refugees coming to, I believe, Greece and, and sink, you know, and you had like people like 70 people sink and go down with a ship and everybody was like, it wasn't even front page news. And you had this one submarine and people had decided to go in there. And it was like, I think three or four people, right? And everybody followed the news over days because that irked me so much because I was like, those people chose to spend a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> to go do that. And there's people literally drowning trying to escape and we don't care. For me, that was very much lives. Do we value more? Which is a whole separate topic, which we yeah. don't need to get into nor should we because I really want to know why you started your company but I appreciate you explaining the background of why year over year you were not getting additional funding yeah no I mean I think it's and I think you also touched on something very important because um it's right now it's about what disease you have and not about a person's health and my work is done when people start caring about people's health as opposed to what type of condition they have. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we have here these stories that, you know, the Deputy Minister of Health from South Africa told us on one of our first panels. And she said, there are people coming to me with diabetes and they say, I wish I had HIV AIDS because then I could have access to medicines. And that is what's fundamentally wrong with the way that we do global health right now. Um, and had have set up systems. And it's a whole other debate of who should pay, you know, it should definitely be the governments that, you know, set up strong healthcare systems and donor dependency isn't the way to go. But when you have countries with like 40, budgets of $40 per person per year and then a pandemic comes along and 90% of the funding that they have goes towards buying vaccines and 10% is red left for all other conditions, like, I believe that there should be solidarity in place to actually support um, people in need. So, but basically, so here it was in 2018, I had been in the field like 10, 15 years researching the economics and the funding flows for chronic conditions globally. And I just was a bit frustrated because I think two things. One was there was a notion that the private sector should be involved in financing for universal healthcare, but there was no way to actually have meaningful discussions of how this funding model could look like. And I felt there needed to be an organization that's a neutral convener that offers technical support that really thinks about solutions and dialogue as opposed to, you know, just sort of like vested interests one way or another. And the second thing was that I felt that the evidence needed to be translated in a better way. For me, it was not enough to say, okay, we can save 5% of GDP if we only invested in, in, in adherence, access and prevention. I wanted to actually ensure that this evidence gets translated and made accessible to policymakers beyond what I, we've seen at the OECD and beyond what I've seen being applied in academia. 
And so I said, well, I could stay in academia or in international organizations as an economist and contribute to similar studies, obviously help develop the models, help push for better data. It's fantastic work that's being done at these organizations, but I just felt in the translation and in a communication between the public and the private sector, we were having so many gaps. And I said to myself, well, I'm gonna give myself five years and try to kind of close that gap and see if we can set up a blended finance fund for chronic diseases. Obviously thinking that we had solved so much on the infectious disease agenda that we now can build on that and venture into chronic diseases. And then, you know, once we had raised our startup funding, we opened our office and then 10 days later we closed because of the pandemic. So that's a whole other story. And we definitely had to pivot. Wow. And then, yeah, I mean, being a female founder was, I think, harder than starting something from the ground up. So I got a lot of pushback and just raised the eyebrows when I started fundraising. And it's still hard to this day. And I don't, you know, I think less than 3%, if you just look at venture capital, even though we are nonprofit. So when you look at venture capital, like only like less than 3% of all um, go, startups. Go to women startups. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that dropped to 2% during the pandemic. It may be back up, but it's no different. Like, I mean, and, and, and that kind of like gendered thinking, we, we experienced that from both female and male program offices at foundations. Um, and, um, you know, we started to bring in our, you know, male champions with a lot of fundraising experience that they actually, and literally them helping say, basically saying, you know, believe Andrea, we believe in Andrea's board. We believe in HFI, like Surabi was my co-founder, you know, we live in Andrea and Surabi. And they are really the people to go to and they have the network. It's not us, it's them, but we support them because we think they have what it have what it takes and so on. So but it still remains hard to this day. And um <clears throat> and has it grown as much as I wanted it to? No, it hasn't, you know. Will it? I don't know, but you know, at least I've tried, right? And there were like I looked at the staff roster, I think we had over 75 staff. That was just in the last four years, not the last five years that have joined us and helped build this organization and create the footprint that we've, that we've managed to accumulate right now. So what's your next goal for the company? Like, what are you kind of tackling right now? And is there a way that either myself or listeners can help or get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously we always there to raise money, you know, so <laughs> we always have fundraising goals and we are replenishing our core funding for, for the nonprofit organization with the hope that about 60% is really of our efforts are focused on the advocacy, the network building, um, and, and helping to build um, local um, um, capacity. Um, we also have our, um, are launching um, several white papers on some of the impact metrics around um, what are the goals when we go to universal healthcare. So back to my essay when I was doing my master's, you know, we're looking at there's a UN high level meeting on universal healthcare this year, and we're launching a paper saying here should be the blended finance goals, not just the public goals, but also the blended finance goals for that. And we hope that that gets picked up and applied by, you know, several countries and implementers that in five years from now I said, okay, we've had this framework, but now it's actually applied. And now we can measure how many countries are actually using it in order to maybe speed up our progress towards universal healthcare and universal healthcare financing. Um, also, I think the goal would be to help 
um, the the setup, you know, up to five different, you know, social uh, blended finance models in various countries, and just to continue to work and to continue building um, the technical capacity and the data capacity. Um, we are also so that's for the Health Finance Institute. We're also incubating an idea that I'm rather excited about, which is called the Health Impact Credit, and we're basically de developing a scoring. Um, algorithm to score the health impact, both positive and negative, that companies have. So basically, like, you know, uh, Moderna can sell health credits to McDonald's, ob obesity contributing McDonald's, you know, so on, on a very simple basis. And you to think about it the same way as the carbon credit. So what's been an issue with ESG, the environmental, social and governance um, investing in indicators is that it's both qualitative and quantitative, and that health isn't really represented. However, back to our previous discussion, health has such a humongous impact. It's like a macro critical issue. If you don't invest in health, you lose out on economic and human development for your country, whether that's a high income country or a low income country. So we think that um, those impact investors that claim to invest in health should have a way of measuring where the best return is, both in terms of health impact and financial impact. And we actually think, based on the data thus far, that better health impact also yields better returns. So it becomes a way of measuring um, the health, health and the economic and financial impact that companies have, and hopefully can drive more investments at the national level. So if we can basically say, you know, we have created an extra $5 billion of investments in health that is accredited based on the standard that has generated XYZ health impact, I think that um, could be um, a real meaningful contribution to, to um, you know, health and health finance overall. So that's sort of something I'm really excited about right now. So we'll talk offline, but I have like a few people to introduce you to that just sparked my memory. But I just want to thank you. I think the work you're doing is not only so important, but impactful. I hope that it helps guide um, where public health policy starts to move towards um, that during the next election, people are mindful when people are hearing what um, different candidates and parties really want to do when it comes to public health, at least here in the United States, uh, because we need to start to be more empathetic and inclusive when it comes to our health care. Uh, I know I have a younger brother who's a type one diabetic he didn't eat the junk food. He didn't do all the bad. He was born that way. And when you look at the cost of insulin, it's insane what it costs to keep someone alive when they didn't make those choices. So a exactly. lot of people that do have those chronic diseases, it's not like they made the choice. It was that yeah. they kind of got the shitty genetic lottery and had the yeah. genes. Yeah, and we actually do work with a couple of type 1 diabetes projects. Um, one is actually in Mexico, also like a part of the network here in the US. And again, this is, you know, there's globally, I mean, I absolutely agree that it's, it's, it's atrocious how expensive insulin is in the United States. And I think um, empathy is just so important, you know, and I think last year we just were selling quote unquote solidarity because if people don't care, they're not going to, they can have they can be loaded with money, but they're not going to invest anything. They need to be made to care. And I think empathy is the antidote to the dehumanization that we're seeing in the political discourse. 
And that I think we talked a little bit about that, you know, why you do this podcast and why do you do what you do, right? And I think that the the right to health, irrespective of what disease you have, what skin color you have, where you come from, is 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 something is like a, an intrinsic value of our work and why we advocate for this, you know, basically that you know, like um, a, a a disease blind funding, it should be you should help support the health of a person, irrespective of what disease that person has, right? And so um, I just wanted to call out that, you know, I think empathy is huge. And um, to the ability to care not for your next person, but the, the person one block over and a country away, right? I think is really at the core of you know, tackling these issues more so than any sort of like economics. But if economics is the language that opens the door, then we need to speak economics, of course. Absolutely. Um, Thank you again for this conversation. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Yeah, so I love this one quote by um, one of my favorite German authors, Hermann Hesse, and translated it, it says, it goes something like this. It says, you have to aim for the impossible to achieve the achievable. So aim high to to reach your goals, basically. Um, yeah. I, I think I you're living that. that. It seems like you're living <laughs> that every day. Uh, but- the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Yeah, that's a really tough question, but I think it would be one of the birth. So my son is 10 years old right now, and he is just so joyful on any of his birthdays. And maybe not his first birthday. I might not want to relive that one, but one, you know, maybe at the water park on his sixth birthday. And it was at this, he just had so much fun and it was just so much unadulterated joy and I think that would be a great day to relive. I love that. And I love that one day he'll hear you say that, that you want to relive his birthdays too. (laughs) The last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you pick? Yes. So it has to be something with dancing. Um, I think it could be something like want to dance with somebody or dancing on my own something like that um i am very sorry i can't hone in on one particularly but it um another one is by the killers is human and it goes something like you know are you a dancer are you human and i'm like well i'm both why do i have to choose so anything anything with with some you know notion of a dancer in it that that has to be the song that's being played I love it. I'll add one of those to the four year listening pleasure theme song playlist so listeners can hear that song and hopefully it makes them want to dance, but they can also listen to all the other guest theme songs. And again, Andrea, thank you so much. I hope that uh, you want to come back in a year and we can kind of touch base of where we are in this crazy world, but also just like where your work is at the moment and like how we can keep helping because your work definitely never stops, it seems like. No, it doesn't. And hopefully others can join and carry the torch as well. So that that is always the hope. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me and allowing me to spread the word. Yes, no, thank you.